So you're walking to a meeting with a very strict client. It's 8.50 a.m. and if you don't arrive by 9 o'clock sharp to sign the contract, the client will pull out of a $3,500 deal. You know for a fact they accept no excuses. So as you pick up your pace, you pass by a pond. And to your surprise and to your horror, you hear a scream and notice a young girl waving her hands from the middle of that pond. She's drowning and you can see that nobody else is around to save her but you. What do you do next? Welcome to the Impactivism Podcast, where we explore how each of us, as individuals, can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number 17. I've never heard somebody say that they just let the girl drown in order to make it to the meeting in time. Right? Of course you jump in, if able, to save the girl, no questions asked. Right? And in this situation, a child's life is infinitely more valuable than your next contract. And imagine the feeling thereafter also of having saved a life. Right? How gratifying to know and to confirm that you having lived your life, the way that you found to be ethical resulted in a child surviving. Right? And a mother and a family not losing her. Now let's play with a different idea. So what if that pond could be somehow rapidly and safely drained? And you had an app on the phone in your pocket to start this immediately. And allow then thereafter the girl to walk out of the empty pond to safety as you continued on your way to the office. You would make it there in time to sign the contract and could carry on with your life exactly as you would have otherwise. Right? Neither missing out on any of your work nor ruining your clothes. And you can know for a fact that you saved that child's life. Much the same, either way. So the issue is that the app charges you all the costs associated with draining the pond and refilling it, and the bill runs to about $3,500. Isn't that weird? So the question is, in that case, would you drain the pond? So some might be saying, I'd rather just jump in and save the child instead of draining the pond. I mean, there's a lot to think about. If no one else is in sight, she could clearly use more help than just being saved from drowning if she's there all alone, right? Not to mention the water and energy wasted draining and filling an entire pond. But let's assume her parents would arrive immediately thereafter and the pond is drained using 100% renewable energy and the water is all recycled extremely efficiently. So I guess in ways diving in to save the girl you know, of course, it feels more emotionally satisfying, probably more heroic, for sure. And perhaps you have more confidence in your own swimming skills than in a, I don't know, a pond's draining technology. 
But it's 2017, and we have the top-of-the-line pond draining equipment, whatever that might be. And we can be certain that the pond would drain at least as dependably as you are able to swim and pull a child to shore. So in the end, with all things considered, I think many of us would still prefer to jump in and save ourselves. But when we think about it, this would be much more costly to us, right? So if you were to jump in instead, you would miss out on that $3,500 contract and the potential of any maybe future contracts with that same client. You would likely ruin all of your clothes, possibly risk physical sickness if the pond were not entirely sanitary. You'd also risk your own safety in the event the child was frantic and panicking in a way that affected your ability to swim. And uh, (laughs) I have some experience in that as a, a diver, so that's a real threat. And there's plenty of other threats. So it would, of course, feel better to save someone with your bare hands than with an app, right? Well, I guess in both examples, we can try, if we try to really boil it down, we, we get a couple a couple things. So there's either a world, in both cases, there's either a world in which you are $3,500 richer and a child is dead. It's a very morbid example. Or you are $3,500 less rich and a child is alive. I mean, that's it. When we really break it down, those are the two alternatives in both cases. And in this situation, if we place two things on a scale of importance to see which weighs more, right? In in this case, how important are your personal feelings about how the child was saved on one side of that scale compared to the significance of whether this child actually lives or dies and how they go about uh, recovering from that experience? Well, your feelings are incredibly important in almost all realms of life, and they are always valid. And more often than not, you should listen to what they have to ta- or what, what they have to say and what they're telling us. That's generally very good advice. But in this case, when compared to the importance of a child living or a child dying, doesn't your feelings on the matter seem so insignificant by comparison that they simply just don't belong in the same equation? Right, if you're walking, say, into a, I don't know, a life-saving surgery of your own and a stranger approaches you to say that he just feels like it would be better for him, he, he'd prefer if you did the surgery outside. Maybe this is a bad example, but you know, he'd prefer that you did the surgery outside. Well, okay, who cares? Right? That's incredibly irrelevant and insensitive to you at best, and maybe even incredibly offensive to some people who would maybe be inclined to just say kind of, well, fuck off, man. This is this is my life, right? You're believing that your opinion here is, for some reason, of value is astonishing, uh, you egomaniac. That's probably, I mean, some people might think that if, if some stranger comes up and says, this is how I feel about your life or death situation, and it would be preferable for me if you did it this way. Okay, <laughs> that doesn't matter to me in any way. So this is just to say there's a a dime maybe on one side of the scale and on the other side is like a gold, fat gold brick in this situation. Now, that's not to belittle our feelings in any way whatsoever. It's just to recognize the magnitude of the consequences involved. That's all. And if we're you know, not self-obsessed sociopathic egomaniacs, 
<laughs> then our feelings in this situation seem less important than the particular uh, particulars of the uh, a child either living or dying. So with our feelings removed, as hard as that can be, give it a try for a moment, <laughs> with our feelings on the topic removed and these emotions removed, and knowing for a fact that the child will survive either way, and that her physical and mental health and trauma from this event will be exactly the same whether you swim to save her or you use the app, then these two alternatives seem like they are, in a way, equally as ethically imperative you know, of decisions to make. Right? It would be equally as ethically imperative to jump in and save the child if able as it would be to use this app. It seems you know, okay to say that that might be the case. So if it were ethically reprehensible not to jump in to save the child if you were capable, then in the case that you were unable to swim or unable to reach the pond, then, you know, it might seem to be equally as ethically reprehensible not to use the app if you had the opportunity to do so. And I don't know if everybody agrees with that. Uh, and if anybody has thoughts on any of any of these topics that you don't agree with or that sound wrong or don't seem consistent, definitely send me messages and let's have a conversation. I'd be really interested to talk about it. Uh, you know, this pond experiment is not my original idea. It originates from Peter Singer, a consequentialist and you know, somewhat consequentialist, somewhat utilitarian um, moral philosopher. And it's a really, really incredibly thought-provoking thing to think about that really brings about a lot of challenges. I know it did for me a long time ago, and it's been in my head for you know, ever since philosophy classes way back when, and it certainly guided me in some decision-making since then. And I guess that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it forward, also to highlight uh, a bias that we'll talk about here in a little bit. So now, I guess let's try one more variation really quick. So what if you were walking down that same path through that same park on the way to the same meeting, and you came across, instead of a pond, you came across a screen. And that screen was displaying a live feed of a child in a pond in Malawi. And that child was about to drown. And he knew for a fact that no one else was there near that child to possibly save him. So there's a button also below that video that can drain the pond much the same. And once again, you'll be billed, coincidentally, $3,500. Weird how it's all exactly the same. Would you click that button? So I know for some of us, $3,500 is a lot more than for others. And in all these examples, again, and I repeat this a lot throughout episodes, but I'm using dollar amounts as measurements of, of willingness to contribute or willingness to expend energy, effort, and resources. So this can be translatable into units of effort in any other way, units of energy. So just keep that in mind. But I use these dollar amounts to, to try to make these um, you know, somewhat hard to quantify concepts quantifiable. And I guess when we talk about that $3,500 from, from my experience, earning roughly $100,000 in total spread out over the past seven years or so, uh, eight years actually, you know, this is about at the American, po or somewhere near the American poverty level of $11,880 per year. 
You know, so that $3,500 is what I tend to live on for a few months at a time. So if my income over that period were distributed evenly, which I have to say it definitely wasn't as I worked contracts and took breaks to travel and write and create this podcast to name a few things, you know, this would be roughly about three months salary. So for the median single American earning an income of $27,000 a year, this would be about a month and a half salary or 12% annual income. And for the median American household making about $52,000 a year, it would be 6% of uh, your annual income of a household. It's still, right, if this were 25% of my annual income, that I mean, I know my answer is a resounding yes, 100%, without hesitation, I would press that button and welcome the bill because I know there is absolutely nothing I could possibly spend my money on that would be more valuable than saving that child's life. And I'm I'm already donating 20% of my income through Trump's presidency and then 10% for life thereafter. And though I'm not making much money at the moment, I though I will be pretty soon over the summer with some jobs, it's affected me only in positive ways, this idea of, of donating. And I I encourage anybody to really take on that challenge themselves and see what actually comes of it and recognize that this perceived sacrifice is not a sacrifice at all, um, but rather extraordinarily fulfilling. Uh, and yeah, but that's a different topic. So, uh, and of course, you know, I would pass up the contract to jump in the pond. I would definitely use the app just as quickly, you know, and I'd use that app just as quickly in my own neighborhood, walking by the pond, you know, or on the, the other side of the world, right? Because, an American child, you know, from my hometown, with whom I probably share a lot in common, is equally as valuable, exactly as valuable, as a child who arbitrarily happened to be born somewhere else in the world, like Malawi, for example, uh, whom I don't happen to share a lot in common with, you know, due to our very arbitrary birth lottery and circumstances. I guess, as I say that, I guess in a way I'd also argue that compared to, I don't know, anything of any type at all in this massive universe or even within this massive planet of all substances of all living beings of all things i share almost everything in common with a malawian child right how many things exist that are fundamentally different and given that magnitude of things that are fundamentally different i share absolutely no traits in common with how much do i actually share with that malawian child almost everything But don't we tend to focus so much on the minute differences of our skin shades and dialects while forgetting that we're all made of the same star stuff, right? With We all have fingers and we have toes and we breathe and we sweat and we're warm in the sun and cold in the snow and we want to love and we want to desire and we search for happiness. We're all confined into these same skin bags with you know, most of them with hair on the top and hearts beating inside, we're all the same, right? But I guess from a more common perspective, as humans, we share less in common, I guess. I'd share less in common with that Malawian child than uh, with my neighbor. Uh, And I hope that anyone listening to this, especially if you've been listening to other episodes and you're still listening, I hope, you know, that we can all agree that a child's life is worth the same regardless of where that child happens to pop out of a vagina. 
right? It doesn't matter within which arbitrary box on a map that vagina happened to reside when the child popped out of it, right? Whether those lines were drawn on what we call maps and labeled as, as a continent, a country, or a city, right? Humans, <laughs> we've only really recently welcomed the construct of borders, especially national borders or official real concrete borders into our perceptions. And for some reason, we feel like they make us innately different from one another somehow. Right? But before the country borders and the kingdoms, there were tribes. And now, you know, those ancient tribes who were sworn enemies for so long, now a lot of them are just within the same country boundaries, so they fight for each other and beside each other instead of against each other. But in the end, they're just fighting another outgroup this time of some type. A group they define as equally as different as they once saw each other, right? Until they realized how similar they actually were all along. And I'd make the strong argument that one day, not so far down the line, our constructs will evolve as they always do. And inevitably, our enemies will become our allies and we'll look back at how silly we were to be fighting, how silly we were to believe we were so different. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, put it this way. Think about all of this from the perspective of an alien anthropologist and not, not a human who studies the anthropology of, of extraterrestrials, but rather an extraterrestrial studying us, right? Looking down at Earth and trying to make sense of what we've constructed. To make sense of why... We all seem to be perpetually in competition to bring one another down and not in cooperation to bring each other up when that could clearly be beneficial. Right? From that perspective, we're clearly <laughs> infinitely flawed and destined not to thrive. We're clearly unintelligent from their perspective, unevolved, and simply a you know, fascinatingly self-absorbed species. And I'm not saying all of this because I feel like World peace and world cooperation is achievable anytime soon, if ever. I'm, I'm not, you know, preaching we even aim for that at the moment or anytime soon because there are many, many steps that need to be taken before we get remotely close to that point. Uh, I guess I'm just, I'm bringing it up because we're in, somewhat, we're intelligent and informed enough to understand why our brains have these inclinations to think and act in these divided ways. So can't we also choose to be informed on why, right? From an astronaut's eye perspective, why it's all just so silly and counterproductive and just self-defeating? Now, we're certainly intelligent enough, I think, to see that and to alter our perspectives and our values accordingly, aren't we? Or are we not? I don't know. Maybe. I don't have much hope in that, but hey, throwing it out there. So <laughs> I guess that was a bit of a tangent, but it's just to say any differences we can spot among one another that might for some reason lead us to believe the lives of those possessing some of these differences are inherently less valuable than those, you know, without the differences, right? Our in-group is more valuable than our out-group, whether it's a nationality, you know, membership in a community, subscription to a culture, our skin colors, our ethnicity, religions ideological differences, whenever we might feel this way, you know, consciously or otherwise, 
just helpful to remind ourselves that the human species long predated the notion of borders, right? And that also certainly predated any of our current estimations of particular groups, right? We've been around for 200,000 years and there was no such thing as some subculture that we now find rivalries among. So it's just this temporary idea that our present, I don't know, societies have estimated to be for some reason of importance that this group and that group have a rivalry. That will pass. It's all fake. It's all imagined. Uh, if we can just remind ourselves of that, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be productive? Yeah, I guess. How about this? How about this? Imagine you go to this, just because I was looking this up the other day, I went many years ago, but to the Sipilak Orangutan of Rehabilitation Center in Borneo. One of a beautiful, amazing, awesome, incredible place doing really good work. <laughs> just because I was looking this up, the only reason I put this in the example. But so imagine that you're there, right? And this is, you know, there's like a hundred orangutans there. And Imagine that the scientists there that are assisting with the rehabilitation and observing and uh, helping in conservation efforts, imagine that they handed out a scarf to each ape, right? Some red scarfs and others blue scarfs and some green, right? Arbitrarily. And then you were randomly handed either a red or a blue or a green scarf. And if you happen to get a red one, hey, right, does that somehow mean in any way that those orangutans with a red scarf are inherently more deserving <laughs> of life and health than those with the blue or green scarf? Well, no, of course not. That's a really stupid question, right? But then isn't it equally as misguided to act in such a way that values an American child's life as more, sometimes hundreds or thousands of times more, as a child's life in Malawi? And if it sounds like, of course, that's crazy, well, let's look at our the way that we operate and try to deconstruct what our actions actually imply. And, and sometimes we, we are inadvertently valuing life in that way. And yeah, I'll continue probably to bring it up on the podcast. And if you agree with me and this is getting annoying, I'm sorry, I'll tone it down. But okay, so... You get what I'm trying to say. So let, let's get back to the pond or well, let's get back to the screen displaying the pond in Malawi. So with all of this in mind, if you could see this child through the video feed, right, much like you could see the local child in person, you know, if you're actually walking past the pond. If we if we really grasped the gravity of that situation to really understand what was really happening and that this is live and that a child is drowning and that we have a button to press to save that child, right? And if we did not choose to look away out of convenience because trying to grasp such, such gravity was challenging and our minds are averse to that, if we didn't do that, then we'd likely be inclined to press the button just as quick, you know, as we would jump in the water. If, if we, you know, I guess, we, I don't know, we should be inclined anyway, that, that should align. So if we would jump in the water, then we would press the button if we really grasped what was actually happening. So then I'd have to ask this. So what if you couldn't see these children? What if you couldn't see the child in the pond nearby, but instead an incredibly reliable source, a best friend that's 
never steered you wrong or an officer that you know is committed to doing the job and you trust entirely what if that source called you on your phone and told you that a child was drowning in that same pond down the street from your house and you can access that app on your phone to drain the pond would you still do it yeah i mean i mean i hope of course you would right if you trusted if you had some level of certainty to believe that the what was being reported to you was accurate, then yeah. So in another case, what if an extremely reliable collection of competing sources, right, those with very like very strong vested interest in correcting one another and proving each other wrong when they have opportunities to do so, what if they all agreed after considering an endless array of infinitely scrutinized data and information and evidence what if they all agreed that a child in Malawi was drowning and you received the same phone call? Would you pay to drain that pond? I think <laughs> I'll stop with that for the moment, but I think it's all very interesting in theory and it's all provoking, right? But in reality, it's just different, right? There's no button to press. There's no app to use. And those drowning in their circumstances are never within swimming distance, right? And if it's really as easy as clicking a button, then we can never really be certain that a $3,500 button will actually do anything other than charge us money. So this is all, you know, it's incredibly valid and often quite true. Organizations make claims all the time and thousands of charities are working on thousands of different approaches to solving thousands of problems. And in a lot of ways, none of them seem to be doing so much good. But if even if they are, how can we really know when everyone claims to be doing good things? And years ago, before the internet, you know, and before some of the, the world's smartest, most thoughtful, most analytical people came together to answer these seemingly impossible questions of which of so many organizations, which organizations don't actually really accomplish shit, right? And... And which organizations do good things? And then answer which few of these good organizations do the absolute best things? Well, before all of that, it was fair to say I can't be confident what will happen if I donate money or if I volunteer my time or if I contribute energy in any way. So with so much uncertainty, it wasn't quite worth my effort. If I couldn't know to at least an acceptable degree that what I'm going to do is going to result in some positive impact, then I have no motivation to do it. And I, I guess at the time, maybe in the past, it was more like I could pay $20,000 for a 1 in 10 chance of a child being saved, a 7 in 10 chance of nothing happening at all, and a 2 in 10 chance of more people being harmed. Right, those odds would change that thought experiment entirely, and I definitely wouldn't play that game. I wouldn't give my time or energy to those type of odds. And if the odds looked anything like that today, I definitely wouldn't have this podcast, and I wouldn't be pursuing a life that aims to improve other lives, because if it was all just you know a, a shot in the dark, then you know what's what's the point in trying to reason through all of it, you know? And again, as I've said before, and I'm sure I'll say again, the difference between that shot in the dark, if it was, say, 50% better instead of 100 times better, it also wouldn't be worth it. But that's not the case.
Again, it's 2017, and certain things have dramatically changed in recent years. We have extremely, relatively extremely reliable sources showing us that children and animals are dying avoidable and senseless deaths, and that we can be much more certain than ever before that a few specific interventions really do help. And mountains of data and, and analysis and, and information continue to confirm this. And what they don't confirm, they, <laughs> they break down and reconstruct what is the actual model of truth. And as a third-party data analyst, these, these reliable sources, they're really interested more in their long-term credibility than supporting anything without a reason to do so. So these most reliable resources have long since been publicly posting and, and then publicizing any and all of their mistakes made in order to correct them and to remain 100% transparent so that they can be trusted. And if they make a mistake, they own up to it. And they get better and they learn and they improve. And isn't this what we should be aiming for? You know, so this, this isn't to say that we are 100% positive, that the absolute best possible place to donate your money in order to alleviate suffering for humans is the Against Malaria Foundation. But we can be significantly more certain in this idea than we can probably be about many other things on Earth if we're paying attention to the data and looking for reliability. And similarly, a doctor can never be 100% certain you have a cancerous growth from looking at an x-ray and using the best tools at their disposal. There's room for some level of uncertainty there, but when a doctor is 99% sure a surgery will save your life, you do the surgery, right? Or I guess this is off topic, but you, the alternative is going to search for someone in alternative medicine to tell you you don't need the surgery and that would be convenient and it'd be better just to drink a tea, but then you'd die. So the surgery, it's complicated and it sucks, but it's, it's necessary. That's a different topic. So we can, I think with a great deal of certainty, know that your marginal $3,500 donation when donated to the most effective and efficient nonprofits in the world can and will statistically save a life. So, you know, we also know that 29,000 children under the age of five die every single day of predominantly preventable illnesses. And we know that many of these illnesses would be very challenging, very costly to prevent. But we also know that some of them are much cheaper and simpler. And the interventions are underway now and can immediately make use of any resources that are made available. So... What's the real difference here between this pond world, you know, all this make-believe, all these thought experience, experiments, and the one that we're living in right now? Well, I mean, when we're speaking very rationally, you know, Peter Singer and other utilitarians would say there's not much of a difference at all. When we have the data and the knowledge now that the few most effective initiatives in the world will be empowered to save an additional life with an additional $3,500 they receive, and that these children will die without this intervention, then we are living in a world in which we are either $3,500 richer and one more child is dead, or we're $3,500 less rich and one more is alive. And that's really 
shitty thing to hear and a hard way to put it. You know, but it makes a lot of sense and it sucks to think about it this way. I guess the big question then is this, what is the ethical difference between walking past the pond and letting the child drown and not choosing to donate 3,500 extra dollars that you have lying around to what the data shows to be the organization where the marginal funds go the furthest to alleviating suffering. Again, this is that, that question's really hard. It's, I, I guess I've paused before proposing it, but thought I'd go with it anyway. I hope it doesn't scare people away, but it's a really challenging question. I wrote essays on it in college that I still remember a decade later because everything in my mind wanted me to figure out why that didn't make sense. Everything said, no, 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 that's no, no, <laughs> that can't be true. I, I get what you're getting at, but no, that's ridiculous everything in my mind wanted to say that and I struggled with it and I could make the choice of completely denying that there's some level of credibility to that uh, or I could <laughs> I could completely ignore it and try to find other information to prove it wrong but I did I tried to find whatever information I could but I couldn't find it you know and it, it sucks I, so I guess then rationally speaking, from the perspective of, con of a consequentialist, you know, at the end of the day, many ethicists would agree that there's not much of a real, real difference between the two in theory, right? And believing there is a difference would be a strong example of the omission bias. So this is a cognitive bias that causes us to judge harmful actions as worse than less, uh, I guess, worse and, and less moral than equally as harmful inactions or omissions when at the end of the day, the same consequences come about. So one, I guess, more straightforward example quickly of the omission bias goes like this. There's a, a runaway train heading down a track and you're at the station. You're standing beside the track next to a lever. The train is currently heading towards a track on which five people are stuck. And on the alternative track, there's just one person stuck. So if you pull the lever, you would divert the train and from the five people to the one person. So one person would die, five people would not. So what ought you do? That's the question. So how about if one person were on the main track and five were on the alternative track? So in this case, if you divert the track and uh, if you divert the train to the other track and the train kills five people instead of one, most people are inclined to believe that is entirely different from not diverting the track in the first example. But in the end, you were in control of the lever at the time and the same outcomes resulted. So shouldn't it be considered similarly uh, as immoral not to divert the track in example one, meaning to let the five people die instead of the one? Wouldn't it be similar as it would be to divert the track in example two where you actively kill the five people? You know, everything in our heads want to say no, but in the end, the same outcome resulted and you were in control of that outcome. So how much different really is it? So I guess our emission bias, it tells us that inactions that result in deaths are not so immoral, not, not that big of a deal, but actions 
positive actions that result in deaths. They are the most morally revolting actions that we can imagine. But in the end, the same results happen. So, you know, <laughs> I guess, does that add up? That's a legitimate question. Your mind, does that add up? Does that make sense? But again, these are all ethics. They're all just in theory. And, and in these theories, they isolate small parts of large equations in order to make very important points within particular subjects. But in our realities, in our lives, there is much more to consider, of course. The pawn situation is different because in one way of how we would perceive that experience and what implications that might have on our lives. So when we see someone dying and we don't help, the impact on our individual, on ourselves, on our minds is much more than simply, you know, than the impact of simply knowing that people in the world are dying and we're not helping. And if we adopted this reasoning, we'd be forced then to give everything we have to give until we're living at the same level of well-being as those most in need. And that is unproductive. That does not do any good. Depletes our battery. I mean, it does a lot of good, but it's not the best way to live. It's not reasonable. It's not fair. Well, maybe it's the fairest thing, but uh, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Um, so it, in these thought experiments, right, we set some unreasonable uh, parameters to these. But in reality, there are no guarantees. There's no certainties. We can be inclined to look, I think, at cert certainty in real life as in binary terms. And it's either 100% certain or we might as well know nothing. So if we can't be 100% certain that this $3,500 donated to this organization will absolutely 100% save this specific individual child, then we might as well know nothing and it's not worth you know even considering. And if this were true, then the whole moral debate collapses if we had no level of certainty. But there are, there are degrees of certainty here. And I guess here's where the difference is made for me. These thought experiments and their moral conclusions become more and more accurate, more and more reliable in the real world as our level of certainty increases. So in other words, the more data and evidence we use and the more in-depth, scrutinized, replicated analyses we provide, the more certain we become that some paths towards doing good are highly likely to be impactful. And with that certainty, these become more valid. And again, if there were some you know, very reliable answers for how to alleviate suffering in the world, I would, I, I definitely, if there weren't those, I wouldn't have this podcast because in the absence of any reasoning suggesting otherwise, we should just follow our intuitions. But when trying to do good, and especially when trying to do the most good, our intuitions are almost always wrong. And we have the reasoning, the reasoning exists and the information exists to show us that. So because of that, I'm here communicating ideas. <laughs> But when looking at how much we should do, and this is all sitting atop a slippery slope, and there's no real convenient point at which to say, this is exactly how much I should donate, or this is how much I should volunteer my time, or this is how much I should sacrifice my personal luxuries, or joy, or hobbies, or excesses in order to improve others' lives. And because there isn't a convenient point to say this is enough, it can all sometimes be really overwhelming. And I've fallen victim to that. 
Where is the point where it makes sense to say this is enough? You know, but this little bit that I did, if I didn't do that, that wouldn't have been enough. But now it is. So I can stop and I can rest. I can breathe. I can stop thinking about this and enjoy the rest of my day or week or month. Now, that point doesn't exist. And we feel sometimes knowing that, that if we concede and we buy into the idea that we have some level of responsibility as well-off humans born into fortunate circumstances, we have some level of responsibility to assist our incredibly unfortunate, you know, fellow living beings. You know, if we buy into this, then where will it end? And I, you know, philosophically, that's an extremely valid question and a strong deterrent, you know, definitely for me at times thinking if I finally give in and I buy into this, then shit, (laughs) for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to acknowledge that this is the right way to do it. And (laughs) it's going to be hard, but is it worth it? Is that worth it? Right. And I'm not here to say it would be easy to either accept that we have some level of responsibility to our fellow humans and fellow animals. Yes, we are animals now that we share this planet with, whether there's borders out there or not. And it, it wouldn't be all, it would neither be easy to decide how much responsibility we have. I guess maybe I'm here to say <laughs> it's hard. It's all hard. Accepting that. And deciding how to act on it is hard. But I think more than anything, I guess I'm here to say that it's worth it. (laughs) Nothing in the world really is more worth the complications than that of figuring out, I guess, why to do good in the world, why it makes sense and why it, it adds up, how to do the most good of all humans are equal and all animals deserve not to suffer, and then to act on it. And maybe through this, we don't change the world forever, you know, change the world itself in this fantastical way. But without question, right, we can change the individual worlds of the individuals that our efforts reach and know for a fact that to them, (laughs) from their eyes, that fantastical world changes forever. The big one. Change the world forever. Thank you so much for hearing out this episode. I really appreciate you getting through all of these examples. I know some of them might have dragged on a little bit longer than I hoped. (laughs) Um, And I did aim for this to be a lot shorter of an episode, but that's been happening lately. Um, Just trying to get a lot across all in one sitting. So thank you for hearing it out. Uh, I think there's a lot to think about from this episode You know, mainly just this idea of what's the difference between failing to act in a certain way and actively acting in a certain way if the consequences are the same and the outcomes uh, and the consequences are within our control. Uh, So that's to say, is it that much different to stand by and allow uh, pain to take place versus causing that pain? Probably before this episode, we'd say, yes, there's an extraordinarily big difference. And still many probably say there's equally as large of a difference. But I I guess I'm trying to get at maybe that difference is not quite as big 
as we'd originally suspect. So just something to keep in mind. So I appreciate you again. Thank you so much for everything. If you liked anything on this episode, please consider sharing it with friends who might be interested. Uh, Post it on social media. If you have an opportunity to subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher or SoundCloud, go ahead and do so. That would be awesome. If you would really, if you really like the episode, you really like the content so far, consider leaving a review on iTunes, which goes really, really, really far to help push uh, the podcast as far as search results go to get the word out there as far as it can go. And that's the idea. So I wanted to thank Hana, a musician, for her beautiful, beautiful music uh, that you'll hear throughout this episode. Uh, you can find all of her details uh, in the show notes at Logan Sullivan. Uh, Thanks so much, and I'll be back with another episode very soon.